Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Midnight Student, an IO psychology podcast sponsored by the IO Student Association at Hofstra University. I'm your host, Ali Saliolu, and I just want to wish everyone a healthy and happy new year. I hope that 2021 treats us all a little better than 2020 did. But with that being said, what better way to get the new year started than sitting down and talking with, talking IO with one of Hofstra's own, uh, Dr. Rebecca Grossman. So welcome, Dr. Grossman. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Hi. Yeah. So like I said, you, uh, you know, you are a professor at Hofstra and I'd love for you to kind of just discuss a little bit about what your position is at Hofstra, what you do and what led you to, uh, pursuing IO as a, as a career. Sure. So um, I'll start that, as you mentioned, I teach uh, in our master's and our PhD programs. So um, I started out teaching research methods and industrial psychology in the uh, undergrad program within the psych department. Uh, I also started teaching the, uh, at the master's level research methods. Um, and kind of over the years, I picked up some PhD courses. So I also teach a team seminar um, and a research methods class at the PhD level. Um, I kind of phased out of the undergraduate classes as I went along. I uh, retained my master's uh, uh, research methods class. And um, along the way, and the internship director position opened up. So I took that on along with the uh, internship course. So that's kind of what my course load looks like now. The research methods at the master's and the PhD level, um, the team seminar at the PhD level, and um, the internship course at the master's level. Awesome. Yeah, that, uh, I'm just curious. Was there like something uh, specific like in your life that happened that made you want to pursue like teams or were you kind of just like when you were studying IO, you just thought that that was an interesting topic to pursue? Yeah, I kind of had a long journey that led me to teams. Um, so I think in the first part of your question, you asked, you know, what led me to IO in the first place? So I'll start with that. Um I majored in psychology as an undergrad. That was something that I was kind of naturally drawn to. Um, and I, I think like a lot of people, I didn't really know too much about IO as an undergrad. Um, in fact, I actually thought I hated IO. Um, <laughs> I took one class in my undergraduate. I think it was called personnel psychology, but it didn't actually get into the psychology portion of our field much at all. Um, I think we had a human resources textbook we really spent most of our time um, talking about job analysis. It just seemed, you know, too broad and, and not really for me at the time. Um, when I graduated, I didn't really know what I wanted to do yet. I was pretty sure at that point that I didn't want to go the clinical or counseling psychology route. Um, I was really inter interested in social psychology. That just always kind of naturally interested me. Um, but I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with that yet. So I took some time off to just get some work experience before going to graduate school. 
And I ended up taking a position as an infant develop uh, a lab manager at an infant development lab. So I was working with people uh, in developmental psychology, but I was still on campus where I did my undergrad. So still kind of exposed, you know, to what was going on uh, in the psych department in, in terms of research. So I eventually met a PhD student at the time who was in the IO program. Um, and he kind of talked to me a little bit about what he was doing and kind of framed it to me as um, IO, a lot of it really being social psychology applied to the workplace. And at that time, I was, you know, planning to pursue my PhD in social psychology. Um, but when he kind of made that connection for me, I really liked the applied angle of IO. Um, and so I ended up getting involved in his research as, um, as a research assistant, getting a little more exposure to the field. Um, and, you know, eventually I, I really, you know, learned more about IO and was really drawn to it and wanted to continue that path. Um, it wasn't until really I, I got to grad school um, that I became, you know, more familiar with all the different topics. Being a latecomer to IO, I was kind of clueless <laughs> for a while. Um, but once I learned about the team's realm, it was just kind of a natural transition from my, um, my interest in social psych. Um, and then of course, at that point I had had a lot of past work experience, you know, I was, I've always been working. Um, I had that experience in, in a management position. So kind of getting firsthand, um, experience with all the issues that can happen in the workplace and, you know, how psychology principles can really come in handy to address a lot of those, some of those including, you know, team related issues that can come up. So I think kind of my experiences together, my my ongoing um, interest in, in social psychology and just kind of dynamics between people, that kind of led me to the path to teams. Awesome. Yeah, that's that sounds like quite the journey. And whenever I ask people that question, you know, I, I hear kind of similar things, how they didn't really know what IO psychology was and they kind of discovered it, you know, later on in, in their undergraduate career or they had like a advisor or something that kind of showed them the ropes and taught them about like IO psychology and its principles. But yeah, I think you made a good point about like how social psychology and IO are, are heavily related. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I see that too, just with the courses that I've taken so far, a lot of the same concepts kind of apply to the workplace. Um, but yeah, I mean, teams is, I mean, extremely important now. It's super relevant because we're kind of, you know, in this weird spot where, you know, the COVID-19 hit and virtual teams are popping up. I mean, they were always around, but now it's like the norm, right? So, you know, it's, it's great, like the research that you're doing with teams and it's extremely relevant now. Yeah, definitely. I mean, most organizations are using teams to at least some degree. Yeah, absolutely. But you also mentioned earlier that uh, the internship director role opened up and now you're the internship director at, at Hofstra. And, you know, I'm just wondering, you know, what exactly do you do in that role? Yeah. So um, as you know, as a master's student, we have kind of a built-in part of our curriculum where students participate in, in internships throughout their second year. Um, so my role is to help facilitate that process. So um, as a program, we have a lot of uh, 
um, you know, longstanding connections to local organizations, either through our alumni network or just other connections. Um, so my job is to kind of help maintain those connections and always kind of be on the lookout, be on the lookout, um, be forging new connections to, you know, help identify opportunities for our students. Um, and then once I'm able to identify those, kind of facilitate the process of, of students, um, you know, applying, going through the process, um, and just kind of navigating any issues that might come up along the way. So um, I guess kind of at a high level, just um, maintaining that pipeline and keeping it going so we can make sure our students are, are getting good internship experiences um, continuously. Yeah. And how has that role kind of changed this year because of COVID-19? Is there any uh, differences in how you've kind of been, you know, going about that process? Yes. So it's definitely been more challenging this year. Um, I kind of had a, a frantic push over the summer where I was trying to do everything I can because, you know, a lot of sites that we work with year after year were suddenly, you know, not able to take interns this year. Um, a lot of places that um, maybe were still willing to take on interns uh, could no longer pay those interns, you know, as a temporary way of, of managing what's going on. Um, a lot of things were just delayed. So people would say, you know, we, we do want an internship or an intern this year, but just not yet. Um, so it took a lot more um, reaching out than I normally would. Um, I connected with our career center um, on campus a lot more than I normally do. Um, just reached out a lot more broadly, followed up a lot more um, the students also had to be a lot more flexible, you know, in what they were willing to take on. A lot of our students, um, you know, were, were willing to take on paid internships, this uh, rather unpaid internships um, this year, when really our goal is always to have our students in paid positions, and that is the norm. Um, mm -hmm. and, and the students were more flexible in even, you know, the topic areas or the areas of the internship they were willing to pursue. Um, but it wasn't all bad. The one benefit was that <clears throat> some positions opened up that maybe I wouldn't normally have access to because so much is happening virtually. Um, so I think just a lot more had to happen behind the scenes. Um, everyone had to be a lot more open in what the internship might entail. Um, but I'm happy to report now that your entire cohort has been placed in an internship by this point. So it all worked out in the end. Oh, that's, that is great news. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely been such a strange and, and kind of like stressful time, uh, the past year. So yeah, I definitely, you know, sympathize with you reaching out and to these different organizations and for the students too, you know, I'm just really glad that everyone could find an internship and I know more internships are starting to open up, you know, as the weeks go on, but hopefully, you know, in a couple months, it'll be back to normal, whatever normal means. But yeah, definitely. I ha I'm seeing way more opportunities um, more consistently than I was seeing, you know, over the summer, for example. Yeah, absolutely. But um, yeah, like you said earlier, your primary research, you know, areas of interest are in teams and, and team dynamics. So that's really kind of what I want to dive into. Uh, 
for this episode, kind of just talking about teams uh, and then we can kind of dive into some more team functions. So, you know, the first question I wanted to ask you was, uh, you know, what exactly is a team? Uh, is there like some sort of formal definition for it or uh, is it a little more complicated than that? And also, you know, what's the difference between like a team and a group? Because, you know, sometimes they're used like interchangeably and I, I feel like it might get a little confusing. Like, oh, like I have a group of people, but does that necessarily mean I'm in a team? So if you could kind of just elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, that's a great starting point. So what are we even talking about when we're talking about teams? Um, there are definitions. There's actually a lot of definitions out there, um, but they tend to have some kind of common features. So I think the, the features that are most common are um, it's two or more people. And actually that could be a topic of debate. Some people will say two people are not a team, that it has to be three or more. Um, but it's basically people working together interdependently to achieve some kind of common goal. And they do this in a manner where the members have um, sort of specified roles and functions. And this is all occurring within the context of an organization. So teams can take a lot of different forms, but they, you know, kind of the defining features of a team are those characteristics. Um, as you said, a lot of people do use the, the words groups and teams interchanged and interchangeably. Um, but they're not the same. So the key distinguishing feature is that groups are not interdependent. So that means the team members don't have to rely on each other to accomplish their goal. So if you think about a group of people doing, let's say, um, an aerobics class, for example, the, that's a group of people. They're doing an action together. They might all have you know, the same goal of completing that class that day but they're not interdependent, meaning the people in that class, you know, they don't need each other in order to accomplish their goal. And another difference there is they're not, you know, housed within the context of an organization. So that part, I think, is a little less central to the core definition, the being housed in an organization. And I think, you know, that might be even shifting a little bit, but it's still a differentiating factor. Um, but really, that key is the level of interdependence. Oh, okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, so I guess like when you have a group, they're not necessarily team, but if they have like some sort of common goal or purpose, then they basically form as a team. Yeah. So the common purpose is part of it, but what really makes it a team versus a group is if those team members have to depend on each other in order to accomplish that goal. Right. Yeah. Whenever I think of teams, I, I mean, my mind just goes to like a sports team because, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm huge into sports. So I think of, you know, like a basketball team that has like five players on the court. I mean, there's like 10 players in total on the team, like 10 or 12. But then when I think of a sport like tennis, like that wouldn't be a team, obviously, because it's just you and you're, you know, playing against one other person. But would it be a team then if like you have a team kind of behind you, like a trainer, like or, or something like that? So. I guess it's kind of a team, right? <laughs> Almost. Yeah. So there are, I keep mentioning the, the word interdependence. So there's varying levels of interdependence. So you could have a very 
highly interdependent team, like, let you know, and I don't know much about sports, but let's say a basketball team, you know, the team members really have to rely on each other. They're, they're all really contributing at the same time. There's a, you know, coordination, they're going back and forth. They're all kind of contributing at the end to whether they win or lose that game. Um, you can have a lower level of interdependence. Um, as I said, I'm not good with sports, so I don't know an example here, but it could be that whatever kind of the outcome of the team, it could be the the sum of the parts. So if you think about probably, you know, projects you've worked on in your classes, if you and your teammates just kind of divide and conquer and you all write different parts of the paper and then put it all together at the end, <laughs> um, you're it's still a team. You still all need to contribute to complete that paper but you're not interacting in a super interdependent way where you're not going back and forth and really coordinating. So still a team, but that would be considered a low level of interdependence. So in your tennis example, if the, you know, if the leader and, uh, or the coach rather, um, and the tennis player, you know, if they, if their sort of inputs together contributed to the ultimate outcome, then you could make a case that they're a low interdependent team. All right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Thanks for clarifying that up. Cause sometimes I get, you know, confused and I feel like there's a lot of different ways to look at it and you know, it, it does depend, but, uh, you know, we always hear about this model like Tuckman's model. I've mm-hmm. been hearing it a lot since I've been learning about IO psychology and that kind of talks about, you know, the different stages of team development and the, the kind of like the whole life cycle of a team. So I would love for you to, you know, talk a little bit about what are the various stages of, t- of team development? Yeah, so Tuckman is definitely a popular model. That was one of the earlier models. Um, there are others. Um, Tuckman has this nice, um, you know, easily memorable uh, naming of the stages. So the forming, norming, uh, forming, storming, norming, and performing. Um, so this is where, you know, it, initially the team sort of comes together um, they're going through the process of getting to know each other. They're figuring out their roles. Then they kind of the de- uh, develop their norms for how they're going to interact with each other within that team. Um, and then they perform the task and, and work toward that goal accomplishment. So they kind of go through these phases of, you know, whether they're focused on getting to know each other, developing their norms, working on the task, um, and, and moving through that way. Um, another I guess maybe more recent model or, or common model that's used in the team's literature um, is one called the team compilation model. Um, and, and similarly, it's got four different stages. So team formation is the initial stage. So that's where, um, again, the team members are kind of coming together, getting to know each other, um, engaging in those initial interactions and, and figuring out their roles. Then the next stage is what's called task compilation. Um, And here that's where the members sort of start to shift and focus on their individual tasks. Um, And they might need to engage in, you know, some information exchange at this point. So they're they're interacting to some degree, but kind of focusing on their tasks. Then there's uh, a role compilation phase. So this is where Members are really um, focusing on their role as a team member. So kind of going beyond that task work and and thinking about, you know, how can they focus on collaborating, coordinating, uh, 
providing backup to team members who might need it. So more focusing on that teamwork element. And then the final stage is team compilation. And that's where the team really comes together. The members, um, you know, start to feel more embedded within that team. They kind of develop their identity as a team. And the team is able to kind of form their routine where they're performing effectively and they're able to, you know, adapt as needed to whatever comes up. So there are a lot of different, um, you know, ways of thinking about team development. But, you know, as you mentioned, there's Tuckman and then this other, um, this, uh, the team compilation model by Kozlowski and colleagues. I think those are two kind of common approaches. I'm sorry. Uh, I was just going to say, I've, I've, I've never heard of the, of the team compilation model. So that's, this is the first time of actually hearing about that, but it does, it sounds pretty similar to Tuckman's. Like, I feel like kind of takes a similar concepts. Definitely. You can tell that it, it's building on that earlier model of Tuckman um, and just getting a little more specific because the Tuckman model was actually um, initially developed around clinical teams. Um, or clinical groups, rather. So groups that aren't all that interdependent. Um, So I think this one was made to be a little bit more specific to teams. Um, And what I was going to say earlier, you know, as I said, there are a lot of different models, but really the common theme is that it does take time for teams to kind of move through these different phases of development. Oh, very interesting. All right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, And, you know, with teams, they're they're extremely important, uh, especially in the workplace. Whether we want to be in a team or not, like we're eventually, you know, all going to be part of a team at work or in your personal life, whatever it may be. So, having said that, you know, it's important to kind of try to make that team as effective as possible. So, you know, what are are there any strategies for you know? making teams more effective and also like what uh, are some of the threats to team effectiveness? Yeah. So there's a pretty strong foundation of literature at this point. I think teams research really took off about 30 or so um, years now. So we now do know a lot about how to kind of help promote team effectiveness. And then, you know, on the flip side, what are the threats to team effectiveness? So I think those kind of go hand in hand. Um, but I, I, so there's a lot, um, but I would say some of the key things, um, you know, that you want to either focus on or that could be threatening if, if are lacking. Um, one big one is what we call shared mental models. Um, so that's basically, are the teammates on the same page? And that can be about anything. So, you know, do they have the same understanding of what the task is? Do they have the same understanding of um, how the task should be done? What is the timeline? Who should do what? Right? So, of course, if the team lacks that shared mental model and any of these things, that can create a lot of issues. That could be a threat to effectiveness. Um, There are, you know, different ways we can promote shared mental models. Um, One big one is to create um, what we call team charters and to use performance strategies Uh, at team formation. So when the team is first coming together, you can basically develop a team for, or rather a plan for how that team is going to interact and how they're going to accomplish their work. So the team charter is really just formally discussing and creating a plan um, for um, 
just really kind of digging into the details of who is on this team. What are people's preferences um, for how they like to work? What are the norms going to be in this team, right? So are we expecting that team members are going to be on Slack all day during the day and sending messages back and forth? Or is the expectation that, you know, we're just going to send one update email at the end of the day? Um, what is our overarching goal? What are the sub goals for how we're going to accomplish that? All that stuff can be, you know, part of the team charter. So kind of laying that out up front. Um, and then the performance strategy is more about specifically, okay, now that we've established our, our goal, how are we going to accomplish this goal? What are the specific steps we're going to take to get there? Um, so the team can do that, you know, at the beginning when they first come together, they can do it after a performance episode. Um, so, you know, once they've completed one project or task and they're kind of shifting to uh, a new one, that this can be a time to revisit. And that kind of goes hand in hand with another, you know, great way to promote shared mental models is to engage in debriefs. So this is when there's some kind of reflection period following a performance episode where the team, you know, kind of takes some time to discuss what went well, what didn't go well, what do we need to change in the future? Um, so all of those things can really make sure, you know, team members are on the same page about what are we doing? How are we interacting? How are we doing? What should we be doing moving forward, et cetera. So really promoting those shared mental models. Yeah, I think that's definitely so important. And, uh, you know, especially being on the same page, you know, that makes a lot of sense. You want teams to be on the same page. My only, uh, worry, and I guess question to you is that, uh, I guess when that happens, like if you're on the same page, uh, is there like a threat almost in the sense that it becomes like an echo chamber, kind of like a group think situation uh, when you're like all kind of on the same page thinking about the same things? Like, is that a potential threat when that happens? Yeah. So what you're talking about is definitely a possibility in teams. Um, we see it more not so much resulting from kind of like too much of a shared mental model, um, that can happen if if teammates are all too similar to each other. So they're all kind of coming in with the same experiences, the same backgrounds, the same social networks, right? So that's why it is good to have diversity in teams so that you're, you're not sort of developing, you know, this echo chamber and this group think where, or, um, you know, even if your team itself maybe isn't that diverse, you can at least um, engage in some boundary spanning, open yourself up so that you're getting feedback from outside people who do have diverse perspectives. Um, so if you're, if you have a very homogenous team, and you're not, you know, allowing for outside voices to come in, that can certainly be an issue. Um, but with shared mental models, it's really just about do we have a shared understanding about what we're doing? So, you know, if one person thinks the project is due on Friday and the other person thinks it's due next week, that's not a shared meta model <laughs> and that's going to be a problem. Um, so it's more around that kind of stuff, the things that help the team function. Um, but yeah, what you're saying is definitely a possibility, but more resulting from other issues. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that that's just like how I was uh, looking at it. But yeah, definitely still shared mental models, extremely important in kind of pursuing that, that goal that the team wants to accomplish. Um, but, you know, my next question is, 
you know, with the rise of virtual teams, I mean, and even in in-person teams, this, this can be an issue uh, and a potential threat to team effectiveness. And that's, you know, communication, which I feel mm-hmm. like for me personally, like I view communication almost as like the, the foundation of a, a good team. Uh, because if you're not communicating well, then I feel like it's hard to, to share those mental models and to be on the same page. So are there any like strategies or tips to increase that team communication? Yeah. So, um, a couple things. So just communication in general, uh, as you said, yes, it is critical in teams. It's viewed as kind of one of the core things that contribute to effective team functioning. Um, so a, a topic or a, an area that has really emerged over and over again, or I guess rather a strategy, um, is this idea of closed loop communication. Um, And this is a specific way of exchanging information. So this is where first, you know, whoever is sharing a message, let's say via email, um, the sender would initiate that message. Whoever receives that email, the receiver would then read it, interpret it, acknowledge that they've received that message and then, you know, respond to make that clear. And then in that response, um, clarify how it is that they're interpreting that message, right? Because things can get misinterpreted. People can, you know, read the same sentence in very different ways, (laughs) going back to the idea of not having shared mental models. Um, So they make it clear, okay, this is how I'm perceiving your message. This is what I think this means. And then the original sender would then confirm that, yes, that is what I meant by the intended message. Um, So that's one thing that a lot of research, um, you know, shows is very effective. It might sound kind of over, you know, unnecessarily or overkill, um, but it really can go a long way in um, reducing miscommunications. Um, So that's just kind of a strategy for... Um, you know, promoting the communication itself, making sure it's clear. Um, You mentioned virtual teams in the pandemic um, and and just in general too. So this is a strategy for how the communication can take place. But in general, we need to build in systems to promote more communication. Um, So, you know, some of the early articles that we're seeing coming out during the pandemic are talking about you know, building in explicit um, time to hear from each and every team member. Because, you know, when you're talking on Zoom, uh, a lot of things can happen. Maybe people don't have the same social pressures to speak up as they would in person. Or conversely, you know, it's also easy to get kind of blocked on a Zoom call or um, an audio call where you don't have the same social cues, it's easy for somebody to maybe dominate the conversation. So there might not be enough um, opportunity for everyone to speak up. So you kind of need to build it into the way you conduct your meetings or your communications within your team so that it's there's a system so that every person has an opportunity to speak up. Um, also building in opportunities for more informal communication. So, you know, right now that might look like setting up virtual happy hours. Um, maybe some of the, the check-ins that take place can occur, you know, over lunch or over coffee hours. So just kind of opening up the, the 
path to communication. Um, I mentioned Slack earlier. So setting up systems where people can easily engage in communication just so there's more of it and it's not really burdensome burdensome to do that. Um, there's research showing that virtually people tend to be le- a lot less open in the information they share. So meaning they're just kind of down to business. This is the information I need to share. That's it. I'm not kind of going beyond that. And, you know, that could be because it's more effortful to type up a whole long thing in an email or, you know, maybe you don't want to set up another Zoom meeting. We all have Zoom fatigue, right? Um, So you really kind of need to to force it in the virtual setting and, and build in mechanisms for promoting more communication. Yeah, that's that's really good advice. And I remember you mentioned uh, closed loop communication. I remember you actually uh, briefly mentioned that in our internship small group. And I thought it was, you know, really good advice. And I've been trying to use that more and more at my own internship and my own, you know, virtual communication experiences. And yeah, so far it's been good. I mean, I think that people might see it as like tedious or repetitive, but I feel like it does actually work because that kind of makes it easier for, uh, you know, the people to be on the same page. Uh, I feel like for me personally, it's, it's works better like in one-on-one conversations, you know, when you're like in a zoom meeting, it might be a little harder to do that. Uh, but I'm sure, you know, there's other methods as well. And like you mentioned, uh, making sure that everyone has a voice, I think that's extremely important. You know, I find myself sometimes like in a Zoom meeting, like one or two people will be talking the whole time. And then I would want to say something, I'll unmute myself and then someone else will start talking. So it's like, it can definitely be uh, hard to communicate in those team meetings at least. But uh, that that kind of brings me to, to my next point, actually, with these team meetings, you know, usually you'll have uh, some sort of leader in, in a team. So how important is leadership in a team setting and, and what can leaders do? I mean, I know you mentioned all the, all these things right now, but are there any other uh, things that leaders can do to, you know, potentially improve the dynamics within the team? Sure. Yeah. So um, I would say leadership is pretty important within team settings, um, but it doesn't always look the way we might expect it to look. So you know, some of the functions leadership, you know, might serve are things like establishing the norms within the team. So we've been talking about norms a lot today that the leader can play a big role in establishing those norms, Uh, creating that shared vision, creating the shared mental models. Um, They can help manage resources, navigate any issues that come up, etc. But the these leadership functions don't necessarily have to come from one hierarchical leader. So in fact, sometimes that can even be detrimental in virtual teams. Um, So if the leader sort of ends up dominating the discussion um, or, you know, otherwise making it so others aren't really contributing as much to the conversation. um, And this is really actually in all teams, not just virtual teams. um, Mm -hmm that might actually be detrimental for, you know, decision-making or creative outcomes. 
So what the research shows is um, shared leadership is actually really effective in team settings. So that's where, you know, the, the same team functions are still important, um, but the leadership can be kind of distributed among the team members. So multiple team members can engage in those behaviors. Um, and transformational leadership behaviors in particular um, tend to be really important. Um, and and we again, we might think of this as always coming from that one hierarchical leader, but um, different team members can engage in those behaviors um, and and be effective. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I agree with the, the shared leadership. I think that more teams should have that because, you know, even though obviously you, you want a, you want a leader of the team, uh, but I feel like when there's only one leader, uh, you know, sometimes the the other individuals in the team might be like, uh, I guess like scared or nervous to maybe speak up uh, to this leader. So if there's like that shared leadership, it might make it easier to communicate and kind of have that shared mental model if there's two leaders. I mean, would you agree with that? That maybe it kind of like balances out, uh, like, you know, if there's like a leader that's like, kind of more tough and outcome focused, but then there's another leader that's more like uh, people focused and like sympathetic. Would that balance out a, a team? Yeah. So different team members definitely have different strengths. They're bringing together different experiences to the table. So some team members are going to be better suited to perform different leadership functions than others, certainly. Um, and, and to what you were saying earlier about team members maybe being hesitant to engage in these leadership functions, um, you know, that goes back to setting the norms, right? So if we know, okay, this is a team where we're all kind of empowered to engage in these leadership behaviors, or as you're saying, you know, maybe it's these two or three people who are in these specific roles, then that can kind of temper expectations. And so people know what's appropriate and, and are either more willing to engage in the functions or are more receptive of the behaviors from, you know, their other team members. Um, but yeah, definitely different, different um, team members are able to bring together or bring to the table different things and, and kind of balance things out. Yeah, for sure. I would also think that to be an effective leader of a team, uh, maybe, you know, you set those norms like, you know, it, it is okay to, to kind of talk to me like, yeah, you can view me as a leader, but I also want you to view me as, you know, just like kind of like a normal colleague almost. Right. And that maybe makes it more uh, comforting, I guess, for other team members to kind of talk to that leader. Exactly. Yeah. There's research showing that um, people are, you know, less likely to, to speak up when there's somebody who kind of has this strong position of power in the team and they're, you know, they tend to kind of dominate the conversation. So if you kind of remove that status a bit, that can help with some of that. Yeah. So let's say that a team is not being that, you know, effective or they're kind of like still in the, like the, uh, the norming phase or the early stages of team development. Uh, are there ways to, you know, properly train teams to be, effective like like would it be normal for someone to kind of come in and be like okay this is how you know a team should be trained or like how does that process work 
Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So the, the short answer, yes. Uh, there, there's a pretty large body of literature uh, around team training. Um, so at the basic level, really all the stuff we know about training in general still applies. So, you know, we should do a needs analysis. We should draw from principles of learning when we're designing the training itself. Um, we should have systems in place to help support the transfer of, of training. So all that stuff applies. Um, but a major difference with teams training versus other types of training uh, is that you need to train for not only how to do the task, but also how to do the teamwork. So that means you really need to, as part of the needs analysis, you need to uncover where the interdependencies are. Um, so kind of figure out who needs to work with who, what do they need to do, you know, to, to reach task accomplishment. Um, and then the team members need to um, be trained in essentially how to engage in teamwork. So maybe it's that closed loop communication that we talked about earlier. Um, we can train them on the information that they need to establish those shared mental models. Uh, teach them how to coordinate in a manner that helps them work together effectively. Um, teach them how to engage in team debriefs effectively so that they can kind of reflect on their past experiences and plan for the future. So there are a lot of different approaches to the training itself, um, but really the critical thing is to uh, incorporate that teamwork element in there. And I think, um, you know, that can happen at, at the beginning when the team first comes together um, or maybe even later on in the trajectory of the team if they're kind of shifting focus to a new project or if there's some kind of problem in the team. Um, that can also be an opportunity to, to bring in some team training. All right. Very nice. Yeah, that, that makes a whole lot of sense. And kind of one of the last things that I wanted to talk about was you know, measuring team performance, because we all know performance management is extremely important in, you know, all areas of, of the workplace. But when it comes to teams, uh, you know, and measuring teams, it might get a little bit more complicated because it's, it's, I mean, I don't want to say it's easy, but I guess it's more straightforward to measure like an individual individual's performance. Mm -hmm. But when then you include a whole team with like, you know, eight, nine, 10 people, it becomes a little more complicated. So, uh, you know, I would love for you to talk a little bit about, you know, how can someone measure team performance and also like how, how has that changed virtually? Because you're not really like seeing necessarily maybe like what the person's doing behind the scenes, like they're at home. Uh, you may not be, you know, observing them directly. So how, how exactly would that dynamic work? Sure. Yeah. So, um, as I mentioned, at one point, most organizations have some kind of team. So there are all kinds of different teams out there. So team performance can mean a lot of different things. Um, so it, it really depends on what the team is actually doing. Um, but if you think, for example, about you know a software development team, in that case, performance might be an assessment of whatever product they produced, right? If it's a top management team, maybe it would be um, some kind of indicator of how the organization is doing as a whole. Um, so whatever is relevant, you know, to that team, um, but kind of at that higher level um, of what the team is producing or doing at the higher level, rather than looking at um, what the individuals in that team are doing, typically. 
Um, you'll also see you can distinguish between efficiency and effectiveness. So effectiveness is kind of just that evaluation of, of what did they do. So how good was that product or you know, how strong is, is the company, for example. Um, whereas efficiency is also considering what resources uh, were expended to get that outcome. So how long did it take? How much money was spent, et cetera. Um, so those are kind of the, the outcome-focused assessments. Uh, you can also measure team performance by looking at how well the team did um, in, in their actual teamwork. So uh, kind of like we were, we were just talking about with the training, you can distinguish between that teamwork and, and task work. Um, here you might look at what were their processes like? Uh, did they coordinate well? Were the members satisfied with that team? Um, is the team viable? So are those team members willing to work together again in the future, right? So all of those things can be uh, considered indicators of team performance. Um, so it's pretty broad in terms of how that's measured in the virtual workplace. Um, I do think team performance tends to be a little bit more outcomes focus, so less about what the team members are doing on, on the day-to-day. -day. Um, but you could see, I mean, there are a lot of virtual tools now and places where teams are kind of housing their, their um, output along the way, and there's maybe a record of their exchanges. Um, so you can actually, you know, if you go back to a team's Slack record, for example, you can go and see, you know, how are they sharing information? Um, how are they coordinating with each other? Um, what, are they keeping to their deadlines and their calendar, right? So I think there could be interesting ways of looking at the team performance uh, along the way in the virtual world, um, but it's less at kind of monitoring what they're doing on the day-to-day. -day. Yeah, I would, I would only assume that in a virtual team, it would just make more sense to, I guess, look more from like a results-based approach instead of, I guess, like a behavioral approach because it's just, it's there, the information's there in front of you. Like, is this person being efficient or effective? Because, you know, it is extremely hard to kind of measure like what the person's exactly doing like behind the scenes. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but yeah, that's, that's really, you know, all the questions I have for you. I want to, you know, try to keep the the episodes a little shorter. I'll have some feedback I got. So, you know, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, how teams develop. I feel like we're still kind of in the early stages of virtual teams, especially. So I'm sure that organizations and, and teams are going to, you know, make a lot of different changes, uh, you know, what's working for them, what's not working for them, and then kind of adapt accordingly. So uh, it'll be interesting to see. Mm -hmm. but. You know, in the meantime, uh, this is where we're at right now, but I really do appreciate you coming on and uh, having such in insightful information on Teams because it's, it's so relevant right now. So thank you so much for that. I feel like I learned a whole lot, honestly, and I can kind of bring that information that I learned today into, uh, you know, a practical sense in my actual, you know, my internship and other teams that I'm a part of. So thank you. Sure. Yeah. I see why the, the episodes are running long. That went by very quickly.
That's fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, you know, I'll start talking and then five minutes will go by. And the next thing you know, it's, it's an hour. So <laughs> you lose track of time. Hopefully to the listeners as well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I'm sure because I feel like this is an interesting topic and you're very uh, knowledgeable on this. So uh, thank you again for coming on, Dr. Grossman. I really enjoy this conversation. And for all of you listening, uh, I hope you enjoy it as well. Uh, but yeah, everyone, I hope stay safe and stay healthy. And hopefully 2021 uh, is better than 2020. <laughs> yes, thank you. All right, everyone. Have a good night. After midnight.